Miamians will be getting their soccer stadium. Meanwhile, in Palm Beach County, fans are about to lose a racetrack. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Miami City Commissioners voted yes last month to the new Inter-Miami Stadium where Mel Reese Park sits. Commissioner Manolo Reyes was the one dissenting vote and he'll tell us why. Also, for 57 years, drag racing fans gathered at the Palm Beach International Speedway to enjoy the fastest cars in the world. Well, that's over. The owners of the track have sold the property. Some residents are fighting to keep it alive, and we're going to hear from one of them. Well, finally, the man who built the Wall of Hope at the site of the Surfside Collapse, he built one in Ukraine recently. He's back to share stories of his experience. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Miami leaders recently voted on a big yes for MLS soccer in the city. Famous soccer player David Beckham and Inter-Miami will get to move forward with their plans to build a soccer stadium at Mel Reese Park. That's next to Miami International Airport. The new site will be called Freedom Park, and the plans include a stadium, hotel, retail, and other parks. However, the vote took longer than expected to pass the city commission. One commissioner voted no to the deal, Commissioner Manolo Reyes, and he joins us now. Commissioner Reyes, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So you were against the plan the whole time. And I wondered, you know, what was it about the deal that bothered you most? Well, to start with, this, uh, this plan was not uh, properly or, or, or the, the, there was no transparency in the way that they uh, presented the plan to uh, the city commission. It came out of the blue sky uh, and totally uh, avoiding or circumventing uh, the, uh, uh, no, it, it, the requirement of competitive bidding you see every time that we use any city land it has to be competitive bid so uh, they circumvented it by going to the voters through a referendum and in the referendum and they uh, spent a lot of money trying to convince the the uh the voters that this was going to be uh, to build uh they were voting to build uh, a stadium and other uh, uh facilities like uh uh, a commercial and a hotel, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So you but, did, uh, you didn't like the fact that it was a no bid deal. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the process calls for a, for a, for bidding, and and the, if we are going to uh, use our land and provide our land for the private sector for the private sector to develop in it, we have to do it the uh, uh, using the best way to get the best. I mean, the highest money. For the uh, for, for for that land and, and the best value for the land and the only way that we can be assured that uh, we are getting the best uh, the deal on it is by competition by competitive bidding and and that was my first uh, 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 opposition I mean uh, my, my bet uh, first argument and then after another argument that I had was so the way that it was being paid I mean what was being paid. And all the different articles and, uh, and all the different points, that I don't know if you have seen, that uh, the uh, issues that are presented in a summary 
for, uh, from the uh, three uh, uh, law firms that uh, the city uh, hired to assist us in, uh, in this contract. Yeah. And, and Let's look at this. All right, so the, the deal passes, and they were able to get a little bit more money you know, from the Beckham Group. So I think it was like 300000 more per year that they're going to pay in rent for the 99-year lease. Were you satisfied with that? Did you feel better about that? Or, or is there anything about the well, deal me, that you like? Let me tell you one thing. I, uh, I have the, uh, I got about last week, uh, at the end of last week, I got a little page with uh, the deal, the terms of the deal. And uh, I uh, asked the uh, city manager to come this afternoon and uh, let's go line by line at him. I want him to explain to me why we during the first 18 months, there is no payment. And then during the uh, uh, next four years, the next four years, they will they they are receiving a credit of four million dollars for four years. You see. They, they, they claim, oh, they're going to be paying $4,650,000 uh, on the first year. But they, it, then it has a, a line on, uh, uh, next to it. It said six fifty cash after credit. Why credit? Because when they came here and, and uh, asking for this land, uh, they promised that they were going to be responsible for every single uh, uh, penny that was spent to prepare the land for construction and and for remediation of the of, of the 151 acres not only the 73 acres that, that they are going they have control on it right. but also on uh, the 58 acres from the land i mean uh, somebody have to explain to me how th- th- this is it because from what i read here and uh, i am i don't want to give you a, a, a this as as a as a fact, until I speak with the uh, with the city attorney, is they're going to receive uh, close to a hundred million dollars in credits. I mean, that is cost to the city. Let me, ask, let me let me ask you this because there was a lot of tension. There, I mean, the, sometimes there is a lot of tension between commissioners on a number of issues. But for this, this fight dragged on for a while, and then before the vote. It started to get very ugly between some of you, you and some of the other commissioners. Uh, and then, of course, you know, one commissioner, there, was, there were actually two commissioners who were voting no. And then everything switched and then they got the votes they needed. But tell me about. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean by getting ugly? I didn't have any, any, any uh, no? discussion. There was no, de- no, no heated debate on this. Nobody was between between me and uh, and any other commission. No, I just stated what I wanted. Yeah, and I made a contact proposal with asking for uh, uh, very close to what uh, real estate uh, experts have told me that uh, that this land will be. Uh, I mean, that would be paid. Should be paid for this land, I see. but I didn't have any 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 heated discussion with anybody. Maybe uh, you are confusing two other commissioners that oh. had a, a okay. heated discussion. Let me ask this too briefly. There's been criticism that this would be a really bad deal, along the lines of the Marlin Stadium deal. Now, in that one, the public had to pay a portion of the stadium, and we're going to be paying that off for many many years. This was supposed to be privately funded. Is this anywhere near in your mind 
close to what it, the bonds? It is, it is close because we're using uh, they're using 73 acres of land without going through a, a competitive bidding. And in my opinion, in my opinion, the uh, the uh, the uh, annual payment for the that land should be uh, substantially over what they are really paying. And, and I, you have to keep in mind that uh, once they take possession of the land, they can build anything that they want, but housing and a, and a school or, a, or things like that. But they can build anything they want uh, without the city having any say in it. Another thing, you see, uh, there is not a proof of financial uh, uh, capability. There is uh, not a, and there is a bond for two hundred and fifty million dollars. When the whole project, they claim it's going to cost four hundred and fifty million dollars, et cetera, et cetera. There is a, a sort of, I mean, I, I strongly recommend that you read the the uh, the summary presented by the attorneys, so you can make a, a have a clear idea of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, there is a lot. There is a lot to this deal, and it's not something that we're going to just in one discussion cover, no, and we're no, going to no, look no. at it more more intently. But again, talking about Freedom Park, this again, the big project near MIA where the David Beckham Group wants to build a new stadium for Inter-Miami. They also promise to build hotel, a hotel, retail stores, and more parks. Uh, the city voted on the 99-year lease. As we've been talking, it was a no-bid uh, deal. Uh, we've been talking with Miami City Commissioner Manolo Reyes, uh, who was the one dissenting vote. Commissioner, I appreciate it. We'll have you back. There is no. Let more... me let me clarify something real quickly. You if you could that. go ahead. Yeah, that's right. The vote. The, the voters didn't vote for the the the, the lease. The voters voted to uh, to uh, uh, authorize the city to enter into uh, negotiations. That's it. The voters didn't vote for us. No, no. Or, I meant, or, yeah, and I meant the commission okay. voted. That, oh, the commission. Right. The, the commission, commission voted. voted. That's right. Four to one. Right. Yes, yes, sir. You are absolutely right. Commissioner Reyes, I appreciate it. We will have you back on again. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Definitely. God bless you. I want to turn now to Miami Herald reporter Joey Fletches. He's been following this story now for quite a while. Uh, Joey, uh, thank you so much. Okay. There's a lot to this, but... Briefly walk me through the timeline, how we ended up here. So, um, yeah, you're right. It's been it's been quite the odyssey, really, for nine years at this point. Um, but uh, briefly, um, basically, upon retirement, David Beckham signaled that he wanted to, um, and 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 Major League Soccer was interested in uh, getting to getting with him to put a together a franchise, and he he was interested in Miami. And so there have been years of looking at other sites, uh, looking at the poor, looking down by the downtown waterfront near near Marlins Stadium, for example, uh, Marlins Park um, uh, or Lone Depot Park, I should say. And uh, eventually in 2018, uh, the, the concept of going to Mel Reese, this, this publicly owned golf course, uh, was introduced. And that has up to this point, especially after the vote two weeks ago, uh, it's the furthest that uh, the Beckham Group, uh, now along with um, the Moss brothers, Jorge and Jose Moss from Mostec, the furthest that they've come uh, to actually building a new stadium and to field um, an MLS team in the city of Miami. And and break down for me, just so I understand, what is the Beckham Group paying for? And does any of it land on the taxpayers? So what they're paying for... Um, is, is is a lot of things and um you know under the structure under the deal uh, that is presented right now that that uh, that they voted on 
um, they would be leasing 73 acres of land of, of that city owned land um, at Melvries to uh, develop. And um, what they would be doing is they would be uh, building a soccer stadium, a hotel, a commercial center, parking structure with rooftop soccer fields um, and, uh, and, and office space. And um, they would be also delivering adjacent to that a city park. They would, they would, they would prepare that land because it's very contaminated with arsenic from an old municipal incinerator. They'd be cleaning up all the land so they could also they could develop um, actual build buildings, but also provide a park that's 58 acres right next to that. And that's part of their, their argument that there's a public benefit. Um, and they're also paying for, so they're paying for that remediation, that environmental cleanup. They're paying for the utility work that would require, uh, that's required to build anything there at all. And, uh, and they're paying for the actual development, you know, the construction of all those buildings. Was I wrong, by the way? I, I, I've, I've never been, I haven't been to the commission meetings. I was just following them on, you know, online or reading about them that, mm-hmm. I mean, look, these commission meetings sometimes get heated up. I'm not wrong about that, but what, you know, I know that in the last, before the last vote, it, it got a little bit tense. And then the mayor started talking to commissioner Ken Russell, who was the other dissenting vote at the time. And then Ken Russell changes his mind all of a sudden. And, but wasn't there some tension, I think, between like uh, uh, Commissioner Reyes and some of the other commissioners because he was the dissenting vote? There was, so Commissioner Reyes was, was, was on, 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 the, on the no side from the very beginning. What happened was at the very end of a long day, it appeared as though you know, there was already a significant movement and changes to terms um, on, on the dais, uh, on the floor. And three other commissioners, Joe Carroyo, Alex Diaz, La Portilla, and Christine King, who is the chairwoman, um, were prepared to vote in favor. Um, Commissioner Russell did not feel as if he had been properly heard and his, his demands had not been met. So when it came time, and it happened quickly, to call for a vote, Russell actually spoke up and said, I'm going to say no, I would vote no. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not quoting directly right now off the top of my head, but he said something to the effect of I would vote no. And that caught everybody sort of off guard. And they said, oh, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, because that means they don't have the vote. They need four out of five. So it was really, it was really uh, okay. uh, that tension that created there. And he got into a pretty heated discussion with Commissioner Diaz Portilla, sits next to him. Um, before there was a recess, and yeah, then, then they came back. Okay, yeah. I, 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 you know what? I, and again, I'm I'm going, but I'm reading the play by play. You saw it, so <laughs> you you, yeah. were, you were there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you know what? Yeah. I, I mean, one of the interesting things before this vote is uh, filmmaker Billy Corbin stirred things up with a video. I wanted to play a clip. Here's a little clip of it. They want you to think this is about a soccer stadium, but it's just another real estate hustle to pave paradise and build a hotel, office park, and shopping mall. But city leaders don't care. They're all getting paid. Miami is one of the poorest cities in the country. We need help. Instead, we get welfare for billionaires. While rents in Miami have shot up as much as 60% in the last year alone, these guys want to pay the same price they negotiated back in 2018. The city is being cheated out of $17 million every year by allowing this deal. This is a billion-dollar heist happening in broad daylight. All right, so he goes on to say that this deal is worse than the Marlin Stadium deal. And I just want to point out again, that the taxpayers are up almost two plus billion dollars to pay for that Marlin Stadium. Is he right? Are the deals? Can you compare these two deals? They're they're different 
it depends on what you're really where you're placing and assigning value. And that might sound like a kind of academic answer, I guess, but 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 the truth is, I mean, yeah, there's 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 straight up legitimate debt that's incurred by the taxpayers with regards to Marlins Park. Here, it's it's an argument that over how you use publicly owned land, right? I mean, for to lease, uh, some people would say that for 99 years, right, to lease publicly owned land, especially some prime real estate there right next to the center of the county near the airport um, for 99 years for anything less than, and you can fill in the million dollar number that makes the most sense to you if you look at the market um, would be absurd. You know, like, or, or some people say that leasing that land like that for 99 years is just on its face, a bad idea. I mean, <laughs> that's a long time um, to structure a deal. So, so, so when you ask me, you know, is it, is it, is it worse than the Marlins deal? Some people would say that everything I just said would lead to yes, um, or the numbers themselves, um, or the idea that you'd be paving over. Some people have a green space argument, right? Like, you know, there was one stadium that replaced another in Marlins Park. Here, it's it's, it's green space, albeit at the golf course, um, and part of it will be paved over. So it's it's kind of up to you. Yeah, right? and, and by the way, I, I looked this up because a 99-year lease actually is not an uncommon thing. Uh, for for governments to do that, um, it's true. It's what true. is it? They what is this? Lot. What do we get? What does the city get? I get the fans get their team and their stadium, and that's great. Mm-hmm. But what do we get as a city? Um, so, the, you know, there's 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 the, some of the terms that change. For example, uh, um, on the night of the vote, was a, a rent floor moved to four point three million, or or you know, a number that could be a larger number could come out of some appraisals that are still ongoing. They're not yet complete. Some new land appraisals. Um, uh, a bigger percentage of the gross revenue from the uh, from the overall operation um, of the site uh, would go to the city. There'd be some revenue sharing also, and if, if naming rights were sold for the stadium, um, th- this property is also going to be put on the tax rolls. Um, so uh, the, um, the you know the team will be paying state, you know, local uh, school board taxes, and um, and it, it it is a dirty site. It's, uh, it's it's a contaminated piece of land that currently operates as a golf course. It, it would it would get cleaned up. Um, that is that is uh, you know for a lot of folks who are proponents of this, you know, an argument that they make for why it's it's it's, it's worth it. Um, so it's not like the city's not getting anything, but it's sort of like you know when 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 you know a critic looks at this and says it's not enough, or you know there needs to be there needs to be more. You know it is it is a huge piece of land, and um, you know in a market where as as uh, has been pointed out. Um, a lot of people are seeing their rents increase, their home, you know, values increase, everything go up, everything's more expensive. You know, why, why shouldn't the, you know, the city be more aggressive with it? Yeah. And isn't also there a push here to, because I know Miami wants to host some of the 2026 World Cup games. This would be, this would help us maybe get on the list. Um, I, I don't see why it would hurt. I mean, I don't know how how large uh, this factors in of a, of, a, of a factor. You know, this actually plays in that in that bid. It could be. I know. I know that's something that's come up in the past few weeks. Um, you know, I, I, the other thing I've heard, and this is a very anecdotal, just kind of casual conversation over the past couple of years, but in the preparation for a bid for the World Cup, I mean, you think about how massive of an event that is. I I, I don't know if they would be playing in a twenty five thousand or I guess now it would potentially be a forty thousand seat stadium. No, you're if right. They can go to you know they go up to you know Miami Gardens and play um in a bigger stadium. But I don't I'm not completely sure, you know. It, it, it could be part of it. All right. So I mean when does this start? Do they the shovels hit the ground anytime soon or what? 
So not anytime soon. Um, there's still actually one very crucial step, although you could argue that a body in motion, you know, uh, stays in motion. It has momentum. Um, there needs to be zoning approvals. And so the city commission is going to look at this again. Uh, the lease is the lease is, is currently approved, but um, within the next six to eight months is a rough estimate. Um, the team will come back, ask for zoning changes on that property um, so that they can build. And uh, once that clears, that's when really shovels can hit the ground. And I think the estimates from the team, which if you look at the way the last several years have gone, could be p- potentially pretty rosy and, <laughs> and optimistic. Right. Um, but the estimate is that they could maybe they'd be able to actually open uh, Miami Freedom Park in uh, the spring of 2025. Um, we'll see if that happens. <laughs> so many years ago, there was a promise of a team. We're finally getting around to it. I, I just before I let you go, Joe, I just want to say, by the way, uh, you know, congratulations to you and the team at the Miami Herald for winning a Pulitzer Prize yesterday for the coverage of the Surfside condo collapse. Miami Herald, just you, you guys collect these things, but that's that's to show the value you bring to the community. What was that like for you yesterday? Um, I, thank you, Lewis. I really appreciate you saying that. The whole team does. It was surreal. Uh, we, you know, we, we we spent a lot of time on that story, uh, trying to, to to we talked to each other a lot about how to do it correctly. How to, how to be, you know, citizens as well as journalists, right? I mean, we're both at the same time and we're neighbors, right? This happened um, in, in our backyard. Um, these were people that, uh, that, that were in our, in our world, in our lives, in our grocery stores, in our parks. And me personally, frankly, I live, I live a short distance away from Champlain Tower South. Um, and that, um, so there was a great deal of just connection to the community and thinking about the 98 people that we lost um, yesterday. Well, well, also, uh, like, taking this as a strong recognition that local news matters. Your local journalists are super important with the work that you all do and that we do at the Heralds. Um, only we can tell these kinds of stories uh, with the amount of um, care and, uh, and the amount of detail um, and passion that's necessary um, to, uh, to inform our own neighbors, our own community. Well, you've always got a fan in me. I appreciate all, everything you guys do. Keep it up, and, and I also appreciate that we get the chance to work together from time to time. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Lewis, as always. All right. Joey Fletcher of the Miami Herald. Again, they just won another Pulitzer Prize yesterday. Um, talking about Freedom Park, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You could share with us what you think of the new stadium, the deal. Is it a good deal for the city of Miami? Share with us on social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, Palm Beach County fans are trying to save drag racing. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. For 57 years, drag racing fans from around the state of Florida and the country gathered at the Palm Beach International Speedway. People of all ages marveled at powerful machines that could go from 0 to 100 miles per hour in less than a second. The track used to be called the Morosa Motorsports Park until it was purchased by IRG Sports and Entertainment more than a decade ago. And now the track is about to change hands again. But the new owners have no plans to continue racing. Instead, they want to build a 2 million square foot distribution warehouse. Madeline Marconi spent her life at that track, and she's leading the fight to keep racing in the county. Madeline, welcome to the program. Hi, Lewis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Great to have you. I do want to mention that we reached out to the Palm Beach County Commission and to IRG Sports, 
and we've yet to hear back from both, but the invitation is there. Madeline, you've been, this track has, has been a part of your life, your whole life, hasn't it? Yeah, it literally has. I, I always say that I was basically born at that track. I was going there when my mom was even pregnant with me. Um, so for the last 25 years, I mean, my sister, who's two years older than me and myself, I'm, you know, for the last 25 years, I've literally grown up at that racetrack. Your father's a drag racer. He is. Yes, he has been drag racing for probably around 40 years now. Um, and you know, he was there when it was Palm Beach Dragway, when it was Moroso Motorsports Park, um, and then ultimately Palm Beach International Raceway. So we've really, we've been through all of the changes thus far. Um, and yeah, we have a, a great love of drag racing in my family. How do you describe to somebody who's never been to a drag race, what that experience is like? Yeah. So it's definitely unique, um, you know, between, uh, you know, as soon as you step on the property of the racetrack, you just hear the rumble of engines. Um, it kind of gets your blood flowing as soon as you enter. Um, and then you hear, you know, the, the cars warming up. Um, and it's basically all levels, whether you're at the sportsman level, which it's not really novice, but, um, you know, we have our sportsman bracket racers up to the professional level. Um, there's just a major sense of camaraderie, uh, you know, the roar of the engines, it really gets your heart going. Um, and then ultimately seeing them go down the racetrack, you know, when the light turns green, um, you see these engines revving and doing what they were built to do. Um, and there's really nothing really like it. You know, it's, it's definitely a unique sport and it's, uh, definitely become a family sport too, which is cool. I would just tell people, watch a video of a car going zero to 100 in less than a second. And that's, you know, um, when was the moment, though, that you first learned that the owners were selling the facility? So, um, yeah, with that, there was a basically kind of a rumor that started, you know, news travels fast, especially in the world of racing. Um, and it was just a rumor. And then all of a sudden surfaced on to the Palm Beach County, I believe the clerk's office, uh, you know, somebody located a contract of sale. Um, and it listed was the address to Palm Beach International Raceway. So it was around August of last year that I really uh, kind of understood that, you know, this this is potentially going away. And, uh, you know, the, the new owners don't seem to have plans for it to stay a racetrack. So it was, you know, it was definitely sad to see. But the but the IRG, the, the, the owners, IRG, they weren't very open about the sale until really near the end, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, everything was kind of kept hush hush. I personally reached out, you know, Palm Beach International Raceway has been very active on social media. So I reached out, I said, you know, well, we're hearing all these rumors, are you able to confirm? And they said, we want to just say, you know, the rumors aren't true. I have, you know, it's still in my inbox. Um, we're here to stay was what they said. So it's, uh, it's sad to you know, kind of feel out of the loop about something, but I understand it is a private sale. And, um, you know, we really understood that it was coming to a close in late March, I would say mid to late March, uh, when they released the last lap event. And it was basically an event that was held April 24th that celebrates the history of Palm Beach International Raceway. 
Um, and it was, you know, basically them telling us this is the last event here at the track. Well, and yeah, we'll did, be they, did they say that at the race or did they give you some time? Like, did they announce like this upcoming race is the last one? Um, I'd have to, they really, I personally don't believe they said it was the last lap. Um, some of the comments were turned off. We couldn't, we couldn't comment, you know, I'm sure they understood there were probably some angry race fans or, you know, confused race fans. So, um, you know, they have every right to control their social media the way they do. But uh, we, we definitely had a lot of questions and we kind of determined it was the last lab just by given, you know, the wording of the event and everything. Let's let's understand what's going on, though, right now, because there was a meeting of the Palm Beach County Zoning Commission in, in April and, you know, to vote, I guess, on the plans for this this warehouse they want to build. But what happened at the meeting? Because it was a no vote. Correct. So they, the meeting uh, produced a full denial of the plans that were submitted by the applicant, Portman Industrial. And uh, so on April 7th, you know, the commissioners, the zoning commissioners, they brought up a lot of interesting uh, valid points with the, uh, you know, the tearing out of a racetrack in our local community and the introduction of a, you know, massive warehouse. Um, so yeah, it received full denial with the zoning board. Um, so then now it gets kicked down the road to the board of county commissioners with that full denial from the, uh, county zoning commission. And, and the, the, this got pushed to a, a meeting, another meeting later in September. Yes, that's correct. Um, so it was scheduled originally for April 28th. Um, Thursday, April 28th, and uh, the applicant, which they are legally allowed to do so, they uh, requested a postponement um, of their presentation in front of the Board of County Commissioners, and that date has been uh, moved to September 22nd, 2022. Again, I'm talking with Madeline Marconi, a Palm Beach County resident who has been at the lead of this fight to keep drag racing in Palm Beach County, if not at the International Speedway, at least in the county. Her father was a drag racer. The Speedway closed after 57 years, and the new owners want to build a distribution warehouse there. Now, if you go to the races, you have a story about your your experiences there, we'd love to hear from you. Share them with us on Facebook or Twitter at WLRN Sundial. Um, What's the plan, Madeline, that come September this meeting comes up Again, Portman Industrial, the new owners, want to get the go-ahead so they can build their warehouse. But what exactly can you do at this point? Um, So basically everything that I'm doing, I am doing it as a resident of Palm Beach County with, you know, I have a lot of concerns about this warehouse that is coming in place of a racetrack that has, you know, historically been here for 57 years. So what I am doing is gathering with the other communities, the members of the communities, the residents of Palm Beach County and beyond um, to just voice our concerns. And we do have a lot of valid concerns, public safety, traffic, uh, lots of environmental concerns uh, with replacing this racetrack with a warehouse. We're worried street racing will you know, increase, which it will, it's inevitable that it will. Um, lots of environmental concerns, like I said. So I have been actively just working to gather, organize my information and uh, be ready for that September 22nd meeting so we can let our, our county commissioners know uh, what the residents want.
because I'm, you could ask pretty much anyone, any resident here, and uh, they'd rather see Palm Beach International Raceway, a racetrack, uh, stay here in place of a two million plus square foot distribution center warehouse. Have you spoken to any of the commissioners? I know that uh, the commissioner, and that's District One, I believe, of Palm Beach County, Commissioner Marina. Have you spoken to anybody? Um, so at this point, I have not. Um, I did reach out and I haven't heard anything back, um, but I still want to gather some more information before I really do reach out. Um, and I would love to sit with each and every commissioner, if that's possible, and just, you know, ahead of the meeting and just kind of relay the facts. You know, at the meeting, we only get three minutes to talk. Um, sometimes that's not a lot of time to talk about something so big um, that affects the community so largely. So that's my goal is to sit with each commissioner and just politely, you know, express my opinions as a resident of this county. Has there ever been an effort or a discussion to give this site a historical designation since, I mean, again, it's been around a long time and I, 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 I'd be the first to say, I don't know what qualifies as making something a historical site, but this sounds like that kind of place. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of uh, questions to me saying, can we do this? Can we do this? Um, I am currently looking into it. I'm not uh, entirely sure with the pro familiar with the process, um, but I am looking into it because, you know, it's so apparent nowadays that history is just being ripped out of our community. And if I could help preserve something as historic as this racetrack, um, you know, I will I will do that because you can't replace that sort of history. It's, you know, it belongs in the history books and it, it belongs to this county. So uh, definitely looking into that. Have you have you come to that place, though, where there's a possibility that it may be gone forever? Have you have you accepted that? Yeah, so definitely, you know, that does cross my mind constantly. And it is a reality that we may all face. Um, at the last lap track event that they had, I uh, I literally left the property crying. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, very emotional about it. Lots of memories. I met my fiance there. Uh, we're getting married next May. So, you know, without that racetrack, my life would look a lot different. So I owe that track a lot. It, um, you know, it has a special, special place in my heart and I'm going to do all that I can to, you know, stand up for it. It sounds crazy, but it's, you know, a place that a lot of people can connect to. So, uh, yeah, I have come to the reality of the, you know, potential reality, but I am, uh, you know, charging forward. You were there before you were even born. You met your fiance there. You got a lot of history in the place, so I can totally understand that. Madeline, I appreciate you sharing the story with us and uh, obviously a story that we'll continue to follow since there's still more more discussion to have on it. Thank you so, so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lewis. I appreciate you having me on here. And uh, yep, we're, we're going to do all that we can. All right. Again, the story that we're going to keep following on the Palm Beach County International Speedway. Again, the owners sold it. The new owners have no desire to continue with drag racing. They want to build something else. But... Will the county go for it? And again, we'd love to hear from you. If you've been going to the Speedway and you've enjoyed the races and you want to see it stay or you want to see drag racing stay in, in Palm Beach County, let us know. Share with us on our Sundial Text Club, 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Or you can always find us on Facebook or Twitter 
at WLRN Sundial. Again, the invitation stays open to any county commissioner if they'd like to join us and talk about it. Well, still to come, the student behind Surfside's Wall of Hope has brought the same idea to Ukraine. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. You might remember the memorial wall that the community helped put together after the Surfside condo collapse last summer. It was located in front of the site and adorned with flowers and photos and other mementos. Leo Soto led the effort to maintain the Surfside Wall of Hope and Memorial. Since then, he founded the Wall of Hope Foundation and has traveled around the world giving communities a place where they can grieve after tragedy. Most recently, he was in war-torn Ukraine, putting together a wall of hope there. Leo's currently a student at Florida International University, and he joins us now. Leo, welcome back. Hi, Louis. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. When did you make the decision, Leo, to go to Ukraine to bring the wall of hope there? So originally, the trip started out with just going to uh, Warsaw, Poland. Uh, Warsaw obviously sees probably the most significant amount of Ukrainian refugees that are fleeing there. It's basically the main airport hub. So I decided to go there and create a memorial right in front of the their central train station. Again, thousands of Ukrainian refugees pass by each day. And I saw the reaction firsthand of, you know, uh, these people just being so thankful and, you know, taking a moment, you know, people were shedding tears and, and it was really beautiful to see. And, you know, that basically proved to me that this could be something that could be really special in in Ukraine itself. So tell me that's about, when I made this. Yeah, tell me tell me about that wall. What it, what does it look like? So the the memorial wall in 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 Warsaw is yeah. actually using um, only uh, real flowers. So I was actually able to go. Obviously, there's a there's a big flower culture in in Eastern Europe, and that I learned very quickly. And I was able to uh, buy some beautiful flowers and get this really central location to create this memorial. But it consists of basically pictures that were printed and laminated of the victims, um, anyone that has died in Ukraine killed by the Russian troops. Uh, civilians mostly are the ones that are featured. And then we surround it. It's sort of like a healing uh, pro- process because people walk up to the wall and they see what we're doing and they all want to add their the flowers that we have, um, zip tie them, you know, take their moment to say their words. So the memorial wall itself is built with the community, which is really a beautiful thing. Then you started your journey into Ukraine, and uh, that was difficult, wasn't it? That was a challenge. Oh, it was extremely difficult, and I guess I thought it was going to be easier. Uh, Very naive of me. So I ended up taking a day to gather as many artificial flowers, because I wanted to make this one in Ukraine as permanent as possible. Obviously, getting real flesh flowers in a war zone is, is not the easiest thing, so I wanted to make it permanent, and I just... Luckily enough, uh, next to Warsaw, about 20 miles next to Warsaw, there's a district where there's like 15 different artificial flower distributors. And so I just basically I woke up, I rented a big, big van and I just drove there and I tried to get just literally knocked on the door and said, hey, this is what I'm going to try. I'm trying to do. Do you have any flower donations that you'd be willing to give? And I was it was beautiful. I ended up filling the entire car. I made my way over to Ukraine. And then that's where the issues began. I actually tried crossing the border originally and. The Polish guard did not let me through because um, because the car rental company didn't allow the car rental, the car to go into the war zone, which, you know, makes sense. So I ended up having to call a connection that I had made in Warsaw, actually, just a couple of days before another NGO. 
And he was able to organize um, a bus ride for me into Ukraine. So that means I had to drive about two hours further south to another checkpoint, um, leave my rental car there, transfer all the flowers to his humanitarian bus. And then I was basically the only person on a bus that was going into Ukraine. I arrived late at night to a, a, an air raid alarm. So right away, it was, you know, a very eye-opening experience. And actually, as we were driving into Lviv, um, the bus driver points out that just on the previous Monday and uh, that train station, there had been a missile strike that killed seven people. So that was another thing that kind of sent chills down my spine. You know, it kind of brought the the gravity of the situation that I was walking into, you know, to face. But uh, organizing the memorial in Lviv itself was was really a beautiful process. So you arrive in this city. You realize now you, you, you're in a war and and the dis the danger and the risk what did you do then how do you go about setting up uh, you know another wall there uh well the the odd thing was that that i actually i spend the night there um we actually had to store all these flowers in a in this church from the 1600s that was that we because we had nowhere else to store it so we we i wake up the next day and i'm like i have to find a good location for this and just walking around, I end up finding this beautiful, just, it's, it's not beautiful, but it's just a fence, like a work fence and I, right in central Lviv. And I just decided that that was, that was the place to go. So uh, the memorial itself, I was hoping to start it around two in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden there's an air raid alarm and everyone just starts, you know, speed walking, trying to find a safe place. And, you know, I myself am a little freaked out. So I find the nearest safety spot. I go, you know, I try to take as much cover as possible. And then you know, come to find out that usually these things take about an hour, two hours, three hours before you get the all clear. So that basically delayed the creation of the memorial. But once there was an all clear, we got all the flowers. We got to this memorial wall. and It was it was really beautiful to have people right away. They picked up on what was going on. I actually had Ola, this, this incredible lady that just told me, hey, can I help you? And she would just she would speak really good English and really good Ukrainian and Russian. So she would be able to just be that communication there to be there to make this memorial happen and i mean it was incredible dozens and dozens of people uh passed by because it was a really central location and they passed by and they actually helped create the memorial so really really special and again with artificial flowers so it's it's still going on it's still there and it's, it's beautiful so you start putting this together people join you in the process at, at any point too did they did people start adding photos and other mementos kind of like the other walls yeah, and that's another incredible thing is that as we were even putting the memorial, I had a, a soldier, a Ukrainian soldier in full uniform, and he just walks up to myself and Ola, and he's trying to tell us that, hey, I want to add my brother that I just lost in, in combat. So that was incredibly touching and striking. And, you know, of course, I got his email, and I was able to to get that information to Ola. Um, but, yeah, and then people themselves have chosen to add their own pictures. And just a couple of days ago, I got sent – a picture that shows that somebody took it upon themselves to add the picture of someone they knew and surrounded with with artificial flowers as well. And people add their own bouquets, people add their own uh, uh, artificial flowers, and it's 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 really beautiful to see it grow organically. How long were you in in Lviv in Ukraine? Yeah, so I was. I wish I could have stayed for longer than I was there. It ended up being uh, about three days, and I just had to catch a a flight that I had previously booked from from Warsaw. So the journey out leaving Ukraine was even even crazier than getting in. But yeah, that's why I had to go back to, to Warsaw. You you got to see what a lot of people don't see. And I, I just wanted to know from you what that felt like. And we see the pictures all the way over here of what's happening. But 
you were there. You experienced the sirens, the danger. What what was that? Exp- how would you describe that experience? Well, the first thing I can think of is there's there's a sense of unity of of Lviv is sort of like the central location where all these refugees from the eastern part of Ukraine are fleeing to, and everybody's just there to seek a little bit more safety. And so there's a little bit more comfort than say you're in eastern Ukraine, but being there firsthand, you know, obviously when you hear those air air alarms, it's it's very scary and it's very actually on my my walk on the morning that I was there, I just I stumbled upon this church and they were having service for um, um, a Ukrainian uh, uh, military person that had been killed in combat, and you just see them take out the hearse and being followed by the mother, just weeping, weeping, and the whole family weeping, weeping, weeping right behind them. And that's just me that I was just there for a couple of days. So seeing the very real tragedy, the very real pain and suffering, and they're 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 fighting for their country, they're fighting for their existence, and seeing that up front, it's it's beautiful. It gets me it gets me goosebumps just thinking about it because it's, it's such brave people yet such beautiful people that always you know I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to reach Lviv without the help of so many Ukrainians and so many Polish people that also feel the 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 pain and suffering that the Ukrainians are going for. So. It's really life changing to you know to be able to experience that uh, firsthand. And, what, uh, and and you said it was it was hard to get out though, right? Oh uh, yeah. So obviously, uh, with people f- are more people are fleeing Ukraine than entering Ukraine by by a lot. So I didn't take that into account too much. So I ended up uh, getting a bus for ten o'clock at night. Um, usually, it's about an hour and a half to get into Polish to Przemysl, the, the Polish Polish border town. But this night, it took about six hours. Um, obviously, you have to stop the bus at the Ukrainian side. You have to get checked by the Ukrainians, do customs, and then you have to enter essentially European Union with Poland. So different procedures, different waiting. So it was a lot of waiting and a lot of just, you know, waiting around. But after six hours, I had to. I ended up in this little town of Premazil. I had my rental car. So I get on my rental van and then I drive to Warsaw, Poland, which is about four and a half hours. And then from Warsaw, I had an 11 hour flight back to Miami. So it was a little bit intense, that, that getting out situation, but I would do it, you know, a million times over because I know this memorial really helped people over there. You know, you started the the work, the Wall of Hope Foundation after the Surfside collapse from last summer. And, and since then, you've erected a handful of these walls. But what significance do each of these have for you? Well, it's the beautiful thing is seeing that the concept of, of these walls, you know, translates pretty much wherever you take it, whether that was Mayfield, Kentucky, after the deadly quad state tornadoes that killed over a hundred people, I was able to go to Mayfield and create this memorial right in front of like, this beautiful courthouse that had been completely destroyed. And there you saw, you know, people that were uh, mostly American, unlike in, in, in Surfside where it was a lot of blends of different cultures over there it was mostly Americans and still they adapted to it. They, they showed the appreciation, they made it grow. And it was, it was special. Um, after that, I went to the Bronx. Uh, there was a public uh, building housing fire there that killed 17 people. And there it was um, in that building. It was a lot of African populations, um, a lot of Gambians. And so a lot of Muslims as well. And then you saw that it translated cross religions. And then uh, so it was a beautiful thing to see that, you know, it, this can this can really help out as many people as possible. Did, so those two, yeah. No, no, putting these together, I mean, look, it's the physical work, but there's also this emotional work in, in building the wall. But you, you see people who have suffered and lost, and I'm wondering how you deal with that emotion. 
well, yeah, I mean, at Surfside, it was extremely emotionally draining. You know, it was just, it literally just took out of you. I remember just feeling so emotionally drained and, you know, realizing that I have to, I have to be smarter about this. I can't, you know, drain all my energy trying to do special things. And even though I know they're helping out, you know, it's not, it's not healthy. So uh, I've tried to deal with it, you know, just by, by looking at the positives, looking at the fact that people are, are getting a little sense of hope. And in different memorials, people always walk up and they say, hey, you know, I, I've been dreading the last few days. I actually knew somebody. I had a family member that passed away. And this memorial is the first chance that I get to have a little hope and have a little and to begin to heal. And I think that's really special. And it gives me strength. It gives me, you know, the power to, to continue on. And that's just the way that I look at it. I'm, I'm helping people in the end. And that's what's worthwhile. And I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um I understand that, Leo, that you, I mean, again, as you said, you flew back to Miami and you did it just in time for your final exams. Uh, you're set to graduate uh, in the fall with a bachelor's degree in hospitality and tourism uh, from FIU. What's next for you? What's next for Wall of Hope Foundation? Well, for me, hopefully it's the development of this, this really special nonprofit um, for the Wall of Hope Foundation, there's actually some really powerful programs that we're developing. One, I just recently talked to the people at Nicholas Children's Hospital, and we're trying to develop this program called Flowers for Angels. And what that entails is essentially they make me aware when a child passes away due to a terminal illness. And what I'm able to do is create this beautiful flower arrangement along with a handwritten letter of support. And that handwritten letter will hopefully come with from the FIU Creative Writing Department. So it's a whole a community uh, basically um, effort and then we're able to send this beautiful flower arrangement with with handwritten letter of support i'm also trying to create this program called blooms of caring and what that entails is basically uh, nami the national alliance of mental illness would let me know when they have somebody that's considered a high risk of self-harm or suicide and i would be able to send them flowers along with again handwritten letter of support in a different manner just telling them that the community's thinking of them so i'm trying to develop the wall of hope foundation to have a daily impact in the community and then also be able to respond to these larger events to just be able to help out around the world as well. Leo Soto, the founder of the Walla Hope Foundation. Leo, thank you so much for what you do. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Lewis. And you can learn more about his foundation on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And that's our program for this Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. Coming up tomorrow on the show, uh, you know, Florida lawmakers are going to Tallahassee at the end of the month for another special session. This time they're going to be talking about homeowners insurance. Can they find a way to offer people relief in a time when housing costs have reached unprecedented heights? And by the way, just wanted to mention that if you or someone you know needs help, please Know that you have options. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. You can also dial 211 in South Florida. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.